Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining me today is Dr. Tom Carrico, uh, who is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is one of the world's leading experts on air and missile defense, as well as long-range strike. Uh, Tom, thanks so very much for joining us today on what we hope is going to be the first of a series where you come back and join us uh, on a regular basis to talk about a, uh, a couple of very important subjects at a very important time. Well, thank you, Vago. Happy to be here and appreciate the invite. Uh, it, it is uh, it is an absolute pleasure. You and I have been discuss, uh, discussing these topics for many, many years, uh, and uh, we thought that we would regularize uh, that uh, conversation. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And I should also point out that L3 Harris uh, sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control, uh, and GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. You know, one of the catalysts of this conversation, Tom, was uh, that uh, you had a fascinating conversation today with Rear, uh, United States Navy Rear Admiral Tom Drugan, uh, who is uh, the program uh, executive uh, officer for the Aegis uh, Ballistic Missile Defense uh, System at the Missile Defense Agency. Talk to us a little bit about what some of the key takeaways were from Admiral Drugan's uh, talk, because, you know, he mentioned that the Aegis combat system is the baseline. Now there are 90 missile defense ships that are in the arsenal, both in the cruiser force. I think he said 22 cruisers and the rest of them are, uh, are Aegis destroyers. Uh, uh, but this system is integral not only to the defense uh, of U.S. naval forces at sea, but also Aegis ashore, for example, to, de to defend Guam, which we'll talk about in, in a moment. From your standpoint, what were the key takeaways uh, from your conversation with Admiral Drugan? Thanks, Vago. And, uh, you know, this is a, a like you say, a, a, a timely uh, moment to, to discuss these things. There's a missile defense review going on in the Pentagon by the Biden administration. And uh, I, I just walked out of the, uh, the Drugan uh, event. Uh, he's a super smart guy and very passionate about all things Aegis. And, uh, you know, the title of it was the Aegis approach. So it wasn't just about a, the programmatic stuff. It was really, you might say, about the a little bit of the, the, the heritage and the philosophy uh, of the Aegis combat system, the, the, the brainchild of Admiral Wayne Meyer from, from back in the day. Aegis has been around for, for many decades. We talked about some of the characteristics and some of the systems engineering uh, philosophy and, and uh, you might say doctrine that uh, has guided that over the many years. And while many weapon systems have, have kind of become uh, obsolete or overtaken by the threat. Uh, you know, the Aegis combat system has been remarkably uh, enduring uh, despite the many changes. And uh, so there's a, a lot to discuss about where we go uh, in the future. You know, one of the things that the Admiral, you know, and, and to highlight what you said, Tom, right, that the system has been continuously adapted since its uh, creation. Obviously, it was created during the Cold War, height of the Cold War, to defend uh, the United States Navy from the Soviet Union's very, very potent anti-ship uh, capabilities. Um, that adaptation now is being extended to hypersonic threats, right, which arguably are one of the most complex uh, that the United States Navy and indeed the United States and its allies and partners are facing. You know, he made the point that we've been looking at this for a very long time. The trouble is, while we've been looking at it, the Chinese have been fielding a hypersonic capability, as have the Russians. Um, talk to us a little bit about what he said about how the system can be adapted to stay ahead of what is a very, very different threat, right? Because Aegis was created for a ballistic missile uh, arc, effectively, 
uh, not perhaps a, a maneuvering hypersonic glide body, right? T talk to us about how this system can be adapted and needs to be adapted in order to defend uh, the fleet and U.S. forces and allied forces from, from this kind of a, a Chinese or Russian capability. Well, actually, uh, uh, actually, it wasn't fielded for the ballistic missile threat. It just goes back uh, much further as an air defense system uh, before. That's, that's the... ab absolutely true. My, my mistake, yeah. my mistake. But good, good, no, no, it's no. good for you to point that out, indeed. Yeah, no, but, but of course, it's, it's fundamentally began as an air defense system uh, that was then uh, adapted to the ballistic missile defense mission. Uh, you know, the Aegis ships uh, were, were fielded in, I guess, 1984-ish. And so that was, you know, SDIO was still a, a glimmer in the eye of Ronald Reagan at that time. And uh, it was the, and, and Admiral Drugan mentioned this today, and I thought this was a very good observation. He was talking about the raids. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's very applicable to the complexity and the structuring of attacks that we face today from different actors uh, for everything from UAVs to cruise missiles to ballistic to gliders and the like. But, you know, the Aegis... Uh, approach. It was, it was birthed out of the air defense need, uh, uh, whether it be maneuvering bombers or cruise missiles and the like. No, they weren't going hypersonic speeds, uh, but nonetheless, they were go they're going very fast and had a lot of complexity even then. And so, you know, frankly, that's one of the reasons why I think that one of his hats today uh, is, is not just Aegis BMD, but the uh, directorate of the missile defense agency that he uh, runs is uh, maritime uh, uh, systems broadly, which includes, as you say, Vago, the, the hypersonic uh, uh, defense challenge that the Missile Defense Agency is the uh, executive agent for. So I can just continue a little bit on that. You know, I think there's a lot of similarity and continuity between the maneuvering uh, air defense uh, challenges of yesteryear uh, when, when Aegis was born and the high-end missile defense, but really the maneuvering hypersonic uh, missile defense challenges of the, of the future. So in, in that respect, there's a lot of goodness in that continuity. It makes sense that they're, they're put together. And that's where the programmatics and the, the R&D are going to proceed within that particular, uh, that particular silo. Is there a sense that that's actually uh, achievable, right? Because there are folks who say that that might be a step too far. Um, you've studied this pretty closely and, and have been talking to folks in the government as well. Um, is that something that is technologically achievable? I mean, are we getting to the point where Aegis can continue to be stretched or have we stretched that rubber band as far as it'll go? No, I, I don't think uh, these are unstoppable. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what too far here means. You, you know, what too far means depends on what the threat is. Uh, and the threat has voted. It's become more maneuverable, but it's become more endoatmospheric. It's gone lower. It's not so predictably ballistic anymore. Uh, and so I, I, the reason for, for, for hope here, or the reason for, is not simply because you know, Aegis has been around. No, that's not the reason. The reason that this, is that this is a complex air defense challenge and that uh, it's got a different trajectory, different characteristics from both uh, bombers and, uh, and ballistic missiles uh, of yesteryear, uh, as I say, but it's fundamentally an air defense challenge. And so we have to have a different sensor architecture. Yes, we have to have faster interceptors. Sure. Uh, but that's a natural evolution, uh, frankly, from the, uh, the legacy systems or the, or the, the heritage is what's come down from, from the past. So, you know, I, why do I call it a complex air defense challenge? Well, unlike the ballistic missile exoatmospheric thing where you've got 
not only reentry vehicles, but you got a whole lot of clutter and chaff and trash that's, and, and, and countermeasures and maybe decoys and such up there in the vacuum of space floating along. And you can't tell, you can't discriminate one from the next. You know, the nice thing about these things is they are uh, in the atmosphere and that strips out uh, anything that is not that which you want to go hit. So uh, it's going to be a hard challenge. Uh, but um, the good news is that uh, uh, there's programs in place, there's contracts that uh, one expects to be awarded here very soon uh, in terms of the glide phase interceptor. So, yeah, no, I think it, it is a tractable problem. Uh, and uh, there's there's good, good uh, toothing in place to, to go after it. You know, you and I have talked about this problem uh, before, and in order to do this, you need a space layer, right? I mean, there's a lot of other investment you have to make, right? So folks do have a tendency, as we just did, to focus on, you know, the terrestrial radar piece of it, the the seaborne radar piece of it, and the interceptor, whereas you you need different sorts of tracking uh, and command and control capabilities in order to be able to execute this correctly. Um, I know, you know, and you mentioned that the administration is now working on a missile defense strategy. What does an investment path need to look like? What are the other elements where we need to be investing in other systems that will be necessary for us to take existing missile defenses, but make them as effective as they need to be against a threat that is moving pretty quickly and, and designed specifically to try to outfox us? Right. Well, the, the, the outline of that answer is a, is a three-word uh, uh, version, and it's detect, control, and engage. Uh, that's how the, it's kind of the Aegis philosophy, kind of the missile defense philosophy uh, broadly. What you just pointed to, the uh, space-based sensors. Why do they need to be in space? They need to be in space to look down uh, as opposed to up from the surface. Uh, and the reason is that if you if you try to fight the surface of the Earth with this kind of a threat, you, you'll lose every time. And you need to you need to be above, over the horizon to to see it coming and to develop a track and figure out where it's uh, where it's going. So the space sensor layer, uh, that's, that's pretty much the uh, uh, broken record on that. Uh, wrote, I think I wrote an article in Politico a couple of years ago about the, you might say the setbacks or the delays anyway of the Trump administration on this particular issue. But it's absolutely fundamental. Uh, we have to have uh, a complete uh, custody uh, of the missile threat so that we can then do something about it. And then that's the, the control piece is the doing, <laughs> deciding to do something about it, developing a fire control solution, as they say. Uh, so that once you have sufficient confidence about where the, the cone, uh, the divert cone is likely to be, then you can uh, begin to uh, uh, use various effectors, kinetic, non-kinetic. But let's just stay with kinetic for now to go up there and then uh, 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 consummate some kind of uh, some kind of an engagement or, or a collision, as it were. So, so that's the, the control side. And then the engage is having something that has sufficient divert or some kind of imaginative architecture that puts multiple things up there that together uh, can, uh, uh, can close, that, uh, close that engagement. So uh, that's, the, that's the fundamental outline. Uh, and that's, it's, it's similar. It's not the same as the ballistic missile defense challenge. It's related to the air defense challenges of old uh, as well, because you don't know which way a bomber uh, is going to turn from one moment to the next. It's just that these things are going uh, significantly, <laughs> significantly faster. So I think I'll just pause there. But what is the administration's missile defense review, right? I mean, as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of, you know, there's the national security strategies being written, the national defense strategy, an Indo-Pacific strategy. There's a nuclear posture review ongoing and obviously a missile defense review as well. Where, where, where does the administration, what's the right place from your standpoint for the administration to end up? Oh, well, you know, uh, a number of, of Pentagon officials have, have said publicly that they, 
They do intend for the missile defense review, the nuclear posture review, and the national defense strategy to all be uh, put out together, uh, presumably in the January, February uh, timeframe. So think before the, the 23 budget uh, uh, PB submission. And you know where the missile defense review goes is fundamentally going to be informed by where the national defense strategy goes, especially. Uh, but also on the nuclear posture review side, you know, I think it's especially the growing threat of what previous NPRs, nuclear posture reviews, have called uh, non-nuclear strategic attack. And that's, that's a big piece, I think, of where the, the active uh, missile defense and air and missile defense challenge is, because, hey, if our adversaries can take us apart and suppress us uh, without any radiation being uh, release. That's a that's a big deal, and that's a problem too. So uh, on the on the missile defense review, you know, I, I've tended to to make a few public suggestions about, about things to think about. Uh, one of them being that how we define the problem. Right, this is a missile defeat problem. We have to be integrated attack ops, passive defense, and utilize all those things to the fullest extent possible. Although, of course, there's limitations on that. There's some things you can't move or hide, like an island. Uh, like an airfield on Guam, for instance. And so for that sort of thing, active air and missile defense is, is going to remain critical. We have to be uh, humble uh, as well about the, the, limita- about the, uh, the extent that what we can expect from missile defeat, attack ops, for instance, and that sort of thing. Second category is a, but what I think is a, a regional and warfighter-centric focused uh, effort focusing on especially things like Guam and and the defense of forward forces. Why? So our adversaries don't get the bad idea of thinking they should, uh, you know, pick a conventional war fight and and, uh, and right. think they win over there. And then there's there's a lot of other pieces as well. But I think those are kind of the core. You know, one of the things you uh, you mentioned is that we have a tendency of thinking about defeat as uh, kinetic, whereas actually there are non-kinetic ways of doing it. What are some of the other uh, elements of this uh, strategy? Uh, just from a fundamental thinking standpoint, right, to, to think through the problem, because you can do some of this in the electromagnetic spectrum as well, well you know, and obviously with uh, uh, directed energy as well. But, but talk to us what you mean by that when, when you talk about non, non-kinetic approaches. Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, and again, I'm not describing, I'm, I'm really just going over the fundamentals here of, 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 of really what's in doctrine now of integrated air and missile defense. Uh, attack operations, passive defense, active defense, and the pieces that put all that together. Uh, and then on the kinetic versus non-kinetic, sure, it, 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 there's everything. There's everything from non-proliferation, counter-pro. There's uh, uh, mission kills. You don't necessarily have to uh, uh, do the intercept if it never takes off. And there's a host of ways to go after that. Cyber EW, you know, if that, if that, uh, if that tell doesn't have gasoline in the tank or any 16 of 16,000 other uh, points of failure, then you can, you can accomplish things without, uh, without intercepting it. So look, that's the whole sweep of attack ops, right. In one way or another. Uh, and then people start to, to think about lasers and high powered microwaves and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's, it's a, that's, that's a much longer conversation. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, the hypersonic uh, strike, right? Because uh, some of this is about uh, uh, defense, others it's about offense. Uh, and obviously the United States is making an investment in hypersonic capability. What does that hypersonic capability need to look like? Uh, because there are folks who are already looking at this and saying, look, I mean, if, if you're, you know, 
and I think, uh, you know, you were on a conversation with uh, Gonzo Gunzinger of the Mitchell Institute and Dave Deptula has said the same thing. Indeed, uh, the former chief of uh, global strike, uh, the U.S. Air Force's global strike uh, command general, Tim Ray, said the same thing. Right. If you if you get a rocket that's half the cost of an F-35, they just become a little bit too dear for you to be able to fire in the kind of volumes that you need to affect um, stuff, especially at long range. What does that hypersonic arsenal need to look like? Mm. Well, first of all, Bago, that I remember that it was a it was a fun debate with uh, Mark Gunzinger. Um, I, I'll just uh, say I was pleased to see the, uh, the the new Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall at the AFA a couple months ago uh, talk about how no he he unlike some past uh, military officials you allude to uh, that he sees a role for the Army uh, uh, for ground based uh, hypersonic uh, uh, strike of various forms. So you know I think to answer the question, Bago is what are these things? And I, I used to see these as kind of the future of, of advanced missilery, having more maneuverability, uh, more flexibility in terms of the trajectory and all those sort of things. You know, I think in the future, we're going to look back and we're going to say, how, how did you ever get by with um, almost completely ballistic <laughs> missile, uh, as it were? So, you know, looking forward, this is going to be the future of missilery. And the question is, uh, are the several domains, and we say multi-domain, uh, uh, battle and multi-domain fires. Do we really mean it, or do we really think we should just do it from one or or maybe two domains? Uh, and I think it, you know, years hence we're going to look back on this conversation, and it's going to be a little bit uh, odd uh, sounding because this is where the this is where the the future lies. I think in, in terms of missile technology broadly, and all the service uh, and all the domains are going to have a have a role here. And to answer your question about a, a missile versus a, an F thirty five, well. You know, the cost curve on F-35 or, or any manned tactical aircraft matters a whole lot as to whether it can get to where it needs to go. And you can, yeah, you can invest in, in tactical aircraft, but if it can't get to where it needs to go uh, from a fueling standpoint or a range standpoint or persistence, uh, well, then <laughs> it's not accomplishing what, what it needs to do. So uh, the targets, the, the ability to penetrate uh, advanced uh, air defenses and that sort of thing, those are, those are some of the reasons why it makes sense to have uh, a good mix of very fast, uh, yes, hypersonic or supersonic kinds of things to be able to construct attacks. And so, no, I don't think that all missiles are going to be hypersonic in the future, but uh, I think they're going to have an increased role over time. And the ability to coordinate and to construct attacks uh, that are some hypersonic and some uh, slower moving things, and then maybe followed by uh, uh, aircraft after that. I think that's that's going to be here for a long time to come. Um, I, I, I don't think anybody, uh, by the way, fundamentally is disputing there isn't an army role for it. But the question of uh, whether you're on the wrong side of the cost curve, right? I mean, we, we could make $100 million hypersonic weapons, but you, you just can't have a lot of them. And even the army leadership has talked about, you know, that this would be a boutique capability uh, and and not a broader capability. And I think that's the question people are asking is, what's that sweet spot uh, that trades off range with, right? I mean, we're looking at strategic effectors, uh, which is the battery that the Army is building under General Thurgood. Uh, whereas we're looking at, you know, I mean, if, if you have 300,000 endpoints in China, for example, it becomes very, very hard to service that, right? I mean, you would expand the entire U.S. defense budget and, and not actually end up with as many weapons as you want. Well, what do you I, think, I think the I, sweet spot there is? <laughs> well, go, I, or, I or, the con ops, or the con ops that goes with it, right? Look, look, we had this conversation, I think, in the past, and that is if you're talking about 300, 
300,000 targets. Is that what you said uh, in China? Uh, I'm not sure how you're going to service that with any aircraft. And I don't know how uh, the Air Force is going to be flying over China doing that with gravity bombs and JDAMs, which is a nice price point to compare to uh, advanced missiles. Uh, and you know what? The more that you think about these things as boutique and niche, uh, and you're only going to buy three of them, well, then, yeah, the unit cost is going to go up. And, oh, by the way, the Army isn't doing this in isolation. Uh, as Mike White, the director of all things hypersonic uh, for uh, R&E, pointed out, uh, the Army is joined at the hip with the Navy. So the Army and the Navy are jointly uh, cooperating. He called it the model of, of hypersonic development, jointly cooperating on the common hypersonic glide body, the C being common uh, in that acronym. Uh, and that if the Army were to pull out on the uh, theory that we're going to take that money and go buy, go buy oh, something for another service, uh, well, guess what? The Navy is going to be hold, left holding the bag. So this is very much a joint effort. Uh, and this was put in place back in the Obama administration. And the desire for the utility of ground-based fires uh, was expressed by multiple, I think it's up to three now, uh, Indo-PACOM commanders successively, uh, that you just don't want to be in a position to try to do everything from the air. Uh, or, frankly, from the air and sea. There's utility to having that multi-domain basing. Uh, and, and I think uh, nobody, nobody would say that this could be done uh, by, by gravity bombs. And I think the Air Force has said that it, 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 uh, you know, it would have to and do yet, And yet it keeps coming up. <laughs> I don't know, but I, but I, well, I mean, the, the whole point is that you would use uh, bombers and try to get some of these weapons much closer so that they're cheaper and you can fire many, many more of them. And then there are things that you can attack from 60 or 200 miles away and things like that. So I, um, well, being, and, being familiar and, with you know, And to be able to open up and create the windows of opportunity where a manned bomber can get there for a stand-in weapon or for a, a shorter range uh, standoff uh, missile. Yeah, but it is about having the ability to construct that attack, to um, get them there. Well, I understood, but I, I don't want to get this. I, I'm not arguing on behalf of the uh, Air Force or anti-Army. I'm just an Andy Marshall uh, uh, acolyte in that you have to be on the right side of the cost exchange. So you, you can create $14 billion missiles, and they may be very, very good. If you can only shoot 10, $14 billion missiles in one shot, somewhat less useful, just like you could make 150-ton tanks or... Uh, Fourteen billion dollar aircraft carriers that you can't afford to lose. So that's the only that's that's the only thing that I'm well, interested I, in I, is I think, you know, I, how we think about this. Again, it has to be a mix. Don't take my word for it. This is what the no uh, no Titans, multiple Indo Pacom managers right. said, and it's it's it has to be a mix to get there to be able to do that. It's not about replacing the the Air Force with a, a couple uh, missiles, as it were. It's about being able to have a uh, the optimal mix. And yes, some rounds are gonna are gonna cost more than others. But it's the cost of effect. It's not the cost per round. It's the cost per effect. You can buy a whole bunch of F-45s. And as you pointed out a minute ago, if they don't get there, then you don't have an effective uh, or cost-effective effect either. Let me uh, take you to one, uh, one last point, uh, and that is uh, defensive Guam. Uh, obviously a very hot uh, topic and a, uh, and a lot of debating, right? I mean, some people have said this is kind of the toughest thing to do, which is, you know, put a Navy system ash ashore on an island and, you know, who pays for it and, and, and stuff like that. How is it we need to be thinking about the defense of Guam? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to uh, emphasize that uh, the, the architecture decisions uh, have not been finalized. 
uh, you know, the references about Aegis Shore. And by the way, if it was Aegis centric, it would not be Aegis Ashore uh, that looks like Romania and that kind of thing, because we're dealing with a very different challenge than what Romania is, is contending with. So uh, I just want to emphasize that, um, you know, fundamentally, I think the question is uh, that you posed is what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to blunt? Are we trying to deny a high end uh, attack from from China and there's kind of gradations on that on that scale. But fundamentally, I think this is about force protection. Fundamentally, this is about force protection to protect, frankly, bombers that need access and tankers that need access to places like Guam, right? You have to protect that airfield from uh, UAV and cruise missile and everything else at least long enough so that you can bring to bear the might of the U.S. Air Force and the might of everything else. And so that's fundamentally the philosophical utility of active defense for the things that you can't move or hide like that critical airfield uh, on Guam. So uh, the answer is, uh, you know, what, what can we use? You said Aegis as one option, uh, especially because uh, the Aegis combat system has, uh, is, is growing out the hypersonic defense. So that makes sense to be part of the solution. And as we heard from uh, Admiral Drugan today, you know, uh, there's a whole lot of utility to have uh, an Aegis taken uh, uh, on uh, ground uh, in terms of manning and it frees up three ships that don't have to sit there uh, parked next to the, the defended asset for especially the cruise missile, uh, the cruise missile defense challenges. So look, I'll just, I'll just lay my cards on the table. Uh, I think the defense of Guam is, it has the potential to be the centerpiece uh, of air and missile defense in the Indo-PACOM Indo region. And I'm, I'm uh, hopeful that the Biden administration will see uh, its way to a robust air and missile defense for Guam, fundamentally for that regional and force protection goal, because uh, that's what it's about. It's about deterring uh, a big conventional conflict with China. Uh, we don't want that. We, we, we don't want to get there. And so we have to have both strike and active defense measures, uh, so that we uh, so that every day they wake up and think this is not something that they want to uh, try to pull off. Uh, Tom, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program, and uh, look for looking uh, forward to having you on on a more regular basis. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Paco. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.